Good morning. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Sorry, I'm not used to this rock star mic. It took me a second to uh, re-put it on. <laughs> um, all right. Well, good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, I don't get the opportunity to do this very often. Uh, I'm one of the elders at Risen North. Daniel Moore is my name. That's what I meant to say. Um, <laughs> and we've been here, my family and I have been here since the beginning over the last seven years. My uh, beautiful wife, Courtney, is right here. We've got three kids, uh, Gabe, who's 10, Sully, 8, Grayson, 5, and we are patiently or impatiently, depending on the day, waiting uh, the adoption of our fourth child in China uh, named Milo. Um, so for those of you who are new with us or who have not been with us for a while, we've been walking verse by verse through the book of Exodus. Um, so today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19. If you guys want to go ahead and flip your Bibles there, open your phones, however you choose to consume God's word. Um, and Exodus chapter 19 is really, um, it's going to be a turning point in the book. Uh, Sean described it last week as we're really moving from the Jason Bourne phase of Exodus, where we've got miracles, plagues, narrow escapes, all the action you would expect in a Jason Bourne movie um, to the Downton Abbey phase, which you can ask Sean what he means by that. I'm a regular guy. I haven't seen Downton Abbey, so um, you guys can talk to Sean about that um, afterwards. Um, no, actually, I was talking to Sean beforehand, and I found out very early on that Matthew Crawley dies, and I'm like, why am I going to invest in this if this guy's, if if guy's going to you know, die in season three? So sorry if you haven't seen it. I just saved you months of heartache. Um, no, but in reality, God is bringing Israel full circle here and fulfilling his promise to Moses that he made to him at the burning bush. Exodus 3.12 states, And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And this is exactly where we're going to pick up right here. Israel's arrived back at this mountain, and here we are. And we're going to start with reading Exodus chapter 19, the first six verses. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, and on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. <clears throat> Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are, wor these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. <clears throat> so this is it. Three months after God brings the people out of Egypt, they've arrived back at this mountain. If there was any doubt that they had been serving the God of the universe... It would have been removed at the arrival of this mountain. So chapter 19 marks both the high point in Exodus, but also, as I mentioned, the turning of a page. The rescue mission, the Jason Bourne phase, the Exodus is over. And we're going to move into a, a new phase where God really starts defining what this relationship, what this covenant relationship is going to look like with his people. And so the first three verses here are really just readying God to reestablish that covenant. Um, it says it's been three months since God rescued his people out of Egypt, um, three months of wandering in Sinai, and the people are wondering, okay, what now? 
Uh, we've been walking around. We've been complaining that we have no water, that we have no food, that we don't have any shelter. And God, all along the way, has provided for each of these needs. We've seen over the last few weeks um, that God uh, made water come out of a rock in response to their grumbling. He literally rained down bread from heaven, and he's provided <clears throat> for their every need up to this point. Um, so here they are, and God's getting ready to renew this covenant. And we're going to see that in the next three verses. And so verses four through six, where he's renewing this covenant, is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Uh, these three verses are sometimes referred to as the very heart of the Old Testament. So they're very key, very critical. Um, and we're going to see three things here. We're going to see how God saves his people, what he expects of them, and what their ultimate destiny or what their ultimate purpose is going to be. So verse 4, we're going to see how God saves his people. So another three-point list here. It's going to describe essentially three phases of salvation. We've got a bringing out, a lifting up, and a drawing close. So the verse starts with God reminding the Israelites of where they just come from and what he brought them out of. It says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. The last five months we've walked through uh, God's response to hearing his people cry out to him for help and this miraculous salvation that has occurred. Um, <clears throat> Israel was hopeless. They had no way out of their uh, slavery to Egypt, out of their bondage. No other country, no other people were going to come in and help them. And God heard their cries and brings them up out of their circumstance. And in salvation, there is always a bringing out. God, God takes the first step, and God's first step is pulling you out of where you are because no one can rescue themselves. Israel here could not rescue themselves, so God brings them out of their circumstance. Second, there's a lifting up. It says he bore them on eagles' wings. Um, and so this is a really cool symbol here. We think of an eagle. <clears throat> you guys have probably seen him flying around the woodlands over here. Uh, these majestic, beautiful birds who are also predators and um, just amazing, uh, dangerous, awesome birds. Um, but as uh, young eagles, eaglets, I think is what they're called. So as these young little eaglets, they hatch. Um, they stay in the nest for about 100 days. Um, and they don't ever want to leave the nest. The, the parent eagle, the mom or dad, I don't know which one. Uh, so we're just going to say the eagle. It has to like flap its wings and stir the nest up so that the birds get out. Um, and so the young little eaglets, they struggle and they, uh, you know, they're on their way by themselves. And does the eagle abandon them? No. The parent eagle actually stays close by, keeps watch. And when difficulties arise for the young bird, when it looks like he's not going to be able to fly, the eagle comes down, swoops him up, puts him on his back and carries him to safety. And this is exactly what God does here. He rescues them. He doesn't just part the Red Sea, get them across and say, all right, you're on your own. No, he stays close by. He meets every needs in response to their grumbling, their complaining. Um, he's there. God stays with them. He lifts them up on his back. And then finally, there's a drawing close. The last part of the verse says, he brought Israel to himself. And this is the reward. Israel gets God. And this is the key to the very 
chapter book um, of everything. So catch this. The Exodus was not about Israel getting out of Egypt. It wasn't about God pulling the Israelites out. It was about Israel getting close to God. And we are Israel here. This very same pattern is the story of our salvation. God comes in and rescues us from our bondage to sin, whatever circumstance that we're in, so that we can be close to him. He desires and wants our fellowship, and this is the point of the rescue, to draw us close to him. And so because he wants to draw us close, it's a covenant. It's a relationship. It's a mutual give and take. He gives and we give. So he's not just providing salvation, it's a relationship, and it's going to demand a response from us. And so that's what we're going to walk through next. We're going to see in the first part of chapter 5 what he expects of his people. So we just saw how he saves his people, and now we're going to see what he expects of them. He simply commands that they need to obey his voice and keep his covenant. Sounds pretty simple, right? Uh, The covenant we are talking about here goes all the way back to Abraham. So Many generations ago, um, in Genesis, Abraham promises, uh, sorry, God promises Abraham a people, a land, and that he's going to bless the entire earth um, through him. He reaffirms this covenant with Isaac, with Jacob, and the Exodus is really the fulfillment of this covenant that has been promised for generations um, before. So God kept his part of the covenant, and so what is asked in return? Obedience. God always demands obedience in response to his faithfulness. In the following weeks, we're going to see exactly what that means. We're going to see uh, right after this in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments being given. We're going to see other parts of the law starting to get laid out and what the Israelites are supposed to do to follow that. Um, But for now, we just need to know that God's faithfulness always demands obedience. So how does this play out for us today? We just saw that God saves his people through no action of their own. And the order here is very important. The Israelites did not obey first, making themselves acceptable to God to be saved. Of course they didn't. They couldn't. They had no way to do that. No, God came in and rescued them because of God's amazing grace. We already see here in the Old Testament that grace through faith has been around for forever. It was of no effort of the Israelites at all. It was only after they were saved that God called them to obedience. So first salvation, then obedience. Most of us always want to focus on, you know, God's grace, you are saved through faith, which is true. It's taught today, excuse me, taught today. um, And we we need to know that. Sorry, Courtney, can you grab me that water? (laughs) Thanks. Um, Um, But God here is clearly expecting some type of response in return. So how can we make sense of this? Remember, Israel was a saved people already, so they didn't really have to obey in response to this salvation. Um, God has just brought them out of Egypt, but could they lose out on the covenant if they did not keep their side of the bargain? One way to look at it is that maybe they wouldn't enjoy the fullness of God's blessing if they didn't keep their side of the covenant. But I think it's more strongly stating here that God is demanding obedience. It's not just like an optional, like, 
yeah, you can come close to me if you kind of obey. The more you obey, the closer you get to me. No, it's, it's, it's all or nothing. There's a demand of obedience. So I'm going to say the word demand, obedience, and perfection a lot here in the next few sentences. But God here is making it clear that for perfect covenant keeping, perfect covenant keeping is required for salvation. And this is part of God's eternal justice system. A demand of perfection. God demands obedience for perfect covenant keeping, and it seems impossible, and that's because it is. And this is where Christ steps in and becomes the perfect keeper of the law, the one who could finally fulfill this perfect covenant keeping. Israel is part of the old covenant. They fail again and again and again, and this is so much the story of the Old Testament. We're going to continue to see God pursue after his people, pursue after his people, pour on as much grace as he can, and Israel will always and ultimately fall short. And so after centuries of futility, Christ steps in, fulfills our side of the covenant for us. Otherwise, we would still be Israel here, falling, failing to keep our end of the bargain. And this is the very beauty of Christ. We are only now part of this unconditional covenant because Jesus kept all the conditions of this covenant that we're reading today in Exodus 19. And so now that Israel has this covenant, and they keep this covenant, or will try to keep this covenant, Israel is going to get an identity. And so this moves us to the, the third part. So we see a salvation. We see God, what God expects of us in return. And now we're going to see what their ultimate purpose is and what their identity is. The second part of verse 5 and 6 says, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. After God describes who he is, he's then going to describe who Israel is. They are a chosen people with a special purpose, and they were chosen only because they were God's uh, covenant choice. Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6, and 8 expands on this a little further. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel had nothing to offer God. In fact, if God was going to choose anybody, Israel would have been the least that he would have chosen. Uh, they were the fewest in number. They were poor. They were enslaved. They had nothing to offer God. So what made God's people precious was not anything intrinsic to them. It's only the value placed on them by God. Our identity in God is why we continue today to strive for holiness, to live a life pleasing to God. We don't strive for obedience any longer necessarily because we need that for our salvation. Christ has come in and done that part for us. He accomplished that for us on the cross. No, we look to obtain holiness because our complete identity is now wrapped up in the fact that we are God's chosen possession. Your value is solely based on the fact that God has chosen you. So, I'm going to let the words of Peter actually describe that better than me, 
Peter here is going to use the very same words that um, God spoke about Israel um, in verse 6. So I was going to try to cut this down to a few verses, and I couldn't. The whole chapter is just amazing. So we're going to read all of 1 Peter chapter 2. Give you guys a second to turn there. All right. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But here we go. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called out, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to, good, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, but we, uh, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but now have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Our identity is now in him alone. Because of Christ, we are part of this royal priesthood of brothers and sisters, and we are God's own possession. 
Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. It's who we are, and this is why, despite what Christ has already paid, um, and he's paid the full punishment of our transgressions, that we lead a life worthy of him. Um, okay, moving on to the second part of chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 7 through 15 of Exodus. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I, hear when I speak with you, and they also believe you forever. When Moses, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to, to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to, said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So after God delivers this covenant, he's going to come down and he's preparing to meet with his people. And we're going to start to see this really weird juxtaposition between God's transcendence and God's eminence. We just talked about how God is loving. He desires this relationship with us, this fellowship with us. We are his treasure possession. He wants to make us his people throughout all of earth and all of eternity. Um, and because of this, we want to focus on God's eminence. And so by God's eminence, you know, I'm talking about the fact that he um, is near or related to his creation, that he remains in creation, we like to think of God this way because it allows us to approach God as a friend, a caretaker. We know that he's faithful and loving to respond because he has a personal, personal interaction with all of his creation. But in verse 12, we see a strikingly different picture. God's about to come down and meet with his people, and they can't even touch the mountain that God's going to be on. That's how holy God is. Not only... If they touch the mountain, they're going to be put to death. And not only are they going to be put to death, the people responsible for putting, the death, putting them to death can't even touch that person. They have to stone them or shoot them. They cannot lay a hand on that person. So in other words, stay away. There's a huge do not enter sign on the mountain. Even other parts of his creation, animals, beasts, they have to be put to death if they touch the mountain. So we see this picture of God's transcendence. And by transcendence, we mean his distance, his separateness from his creation because he is great, he is holy and awesome, and we are not. So how can we reconcile the two? Can we have both a God who is holy, set apart from his creation, and one who is also intimately involved with every single detail of our lives? Yes, God is both transcendent and imminent, and we need to understand both. I was trying to think of an illustration that would help kind of capture uh, this, you know, 
transcendence, eminence con concept. There's not really a good one because he's God, but I'm going to try here. Um, so I didn't go skiing until after I was at over the age of 30. Um, it always seemed like a really fun concept, something I could do pretty easily. You see the Olympians on TV just kind of swooping down the mountains, and it looks um, fun uh, and easy. So um, some friends of me decided that we wanted to go skiing, and I was like, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. So we drive um, all through the night, and um, in the morning, we start to approach the mountains, and as I see the mountains, I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be awesome. Like, they look beautiful. Um, I hadn't really seen the mountains very much growing up, so it was my first time to really, like, you know, be around them, go in them. And as we start driving through, I start looking up, and I'm like, well, they're taller than I expected, you know, when I got here, but still really looking forward to it. Um, so uh, the friends I'd gone with, they had skied before, so they, that first day they went off on their own. I decided it was probably wise for me to take lessons because um, everybody told me it was going to be really hard. Um, so I took lessons uh, from this 65-year-old woman. She was a professor at um, Indiana University, and she uh, uh, did this on her breaks. She just liked to come and ski and teach others to ski. Um, so she stayed with me for three hours, um, and we crushed the bunny slopes that morning. Um, <laughs> It was really easy. She taught me the little pizza pie wedge technique to go faster to, to break. Um, and so we, we broke for lunch. I was eating with my friends, and she came over to me after, and she's like, hey, um, I've seen your friends. You know, they're, they're experienced, and they're going to want you to do something that you're not going to be comfortable with. I can already see the future. So she's like, can I go with you on the top of the mountain for the rest of the day? Um, I don't have anything going on. I was like, yeah, that's great. Uh, one of my friends afterwards was like, hey, did you tip her? And I'm like, no. Um, she was probably expecting a bigger tip. So this is my public confession that I did not tip this lady, and I don't, I don't know the, the appropriate tipping rules. Um, anyway, so we get up there. The only thing I'm really worried about at this point is everybody tells me to be really nervous about getting off the ski lift because it's the hardest part. A lot of people fall. And I, I didn't fall that time. I have fallen other times, but didn't fall that time. And all of a sudden, though, we get to the very first run, and it becomes very apparent what everybody's been talking about. I look down, and I now have this newfound respect for this mountain. And I think to myself, okay. This is how I'm going to die. Uh, they're going to find my limbs scattered in 30 different places. Um, and, you know, that afternoon went about as you would expect. So um, anyway, the closer I got to the mountain, the more that this fear of, like, what was about to transpire uh, came over me. Um, so that's kind of what it's like here. So poor illustration, but... As we focus on God's imminence and we value this relationship with him and, and we value this fellowship with him, but as the Israelites found, the more they experience God's uh, closeness, the more they realized and recognized his transcendence, his holiness. The more they recognized that this huge gulf separated them between um, their savior this person who rescued him and um, themselves. So what is Israel going to do? They did two things here. It says, first, they prepared for the coming of the king by consecrating themselves. They washed their garments. They made themselves clean. 
Um, they abstain from any worldly desires. Um, they try to make themselves as pure as possible. And why? Because it's what the Lord demanded. Um, we can see in Psalm 23, 3 and 4, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. But we already know that they're not going to be able to make themselves pure enough. So they needed one other thing. The second thing they needed was a mediator. They needed someone to stand in the gap to bridge the distance between the holy and the unholy. And for Israel, we're going to see that Moses is his mediator. He's the one who's going to go in between um, God and his people. So Moses goes down and performs a consecrating act, likely a sacrifice of some sort on behalf of his people. And Moses is able to go um, and be the mediator between God and Israel. And so I hope, as we talk about this, this is something that you experience as you draw closer to God. You should desperately want a relationship with God. As we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, we need to crave this spiritual milk so that we can grow and taste that the Lord is good. But we also need to realize that as we draw closer to him, it should become more and more evident that God is holy, supreme, awesome, whatever word you want to put there that's going to help you describe this perfection. As we move closer to him, we'll be continually reminded that we fall short, and we need some way to bridge the gap so that we can be with God. And that's where we can say, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. And Jesus performs the ultimate consecrating act for us, and like Moses, he is the mediator that we need to go between us and God. He is the reason we get to experience this imminence. God's desire for a relationship with us is ultimately available because of Christ. So what's the point in us trying to focus on God's transcendence and his eminence? Why do we need to think about both of those qualities? Um, and why does the Bible talk about it? Why does the Bible reveal that, he, um, that God is both of these things? Um, I really think it's probably two, two things. As we draw closer to Christ and we want to experience that relationship with him, as we realize that God is set apart and holy and the creator, it helps us remember all the more what Jesus actually accomplished for us. Jesus is the solution to the riddle that Israel had between God's eminence and his transcendence. Um, so we need to, it helps us remember and we need to realize everything that Jesus accomplished for us. He is the whole reason why we can be here today as saved people. And as we remember, the second thing it leads to is it leads to um, better and fuller worship. Um, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Um, I'm going to call the praise team back up, um, the worship band, and just as you guys, as we start to sing songs this morning, or wrap up, I should say, and as we go about our week and we worship God, think about we're not just coming to uh, worship with a friend and a father. We have um, the very creator of the universe right here with us, and he's deserving of our full heart, our full worship, our respect. Let's offer something to him that's acceptable um, so he can be held in awe because he is a consuming fire.
Thank you, church. Oh, I'll pray for us real quick. Uh, Father, um, just thank you for this morning. Um, Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for revealing to us um, all your qualities, Lord, your transcendence, your eminence, Lord, and thank you for making us valued, um, a people that that is valued, Lord. We love you. Um, In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.